<clears throat> Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Let me read the verses and then we'll jump in, okay? So Romans 7, starting at verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she would be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This last season of The Bachelorette was a firestorm. Now, for you folks who are not, who are not familiar with this reality show, the premise of it is that there's a single guy or gal in a house of 20, of other, 20 other folks of the opposite gender, and they're all fighting for the affections of this one person. Well, this last season, we had Hannah Brown, who was The Bachelorette, and there was a moment in the season that Hannah and a contestant, Luke Parker, are sharing their feelings. Let me just show it to you here. So Luke is there talking to Hannah, and he begins to share his Christian beliefs and how he believes that the marriage bed should be pure and how he wants a wife to share in that commitment to purity. But right away, Hannah gets defensive because she has been intimate with some of the other guys in the house. And she says this to him. Let me show it to you. Regardless of anything that I've done, I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus still loves me. It's all washed and if the Lord doesn't judge me and it's all forgiven, then no other man, no other woman, anything can judge me. I can do whatever. I sin daily and Jesus will still love me. You know, today we continue in Romans, and this is the issue Paul's been addressing since chapter 6, verse 1, that if we are saved by grace and not by works, won't that just lead people to more sin? And the answer Paul's been saying over and over again is no. Now, some quick context to Romans. Paul's been laying out the gospel of justification, that because of our sinful nature and our rejection of God, we deserved wrath and punishment. This was our hopeless condition, but then God steps into our sin and rebellion and saves us through the perfect life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that by faith, everything Christ deserved, we now get. We're perfectly loved. We're perfectly accepted by God. We have a right relationship with God. That is the good news of justification. This is chapters 1 and 5. And now in chapters 6 and 7, Paul is dealing with an objection to this teaching of grace from the religious. He says it twice in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Chapter 6, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? What's going on here is that for the moralist, for the religious, the gospel of grace 
is just stupid. It is foolish because it will not produce saints. It will only lead people to want to sin more. Instead, if you want to control sin in someone's life, if you want people to respect God, you lay down the law. Now, the word law comes up a bunch of times in our verses, eight times in our six verses, and in chapter 7 alone, 23 times. And the law Paul is talking about here is the Old Testament law of Moses. It's the Ten Commandments and the 603 after it. And for generations, it was the way people, primarily the Jewish people, dealt with the issue of sin and how to live rightly before God. And it was very simple. If you broke the law you were punished. So in many ways, your obedience to God was largely motivated by fear and duty. So what happens in chapter 6, verse 15, is that Paul drops a bomb on many of these Jewish believers or folks of Jewish background, and he says that you are not under law, but under grace. In other words, he is saying the law will never give you the power to fight sin and pursue holiness. It's only by grace. Law cannot transform you. You know, recently I I was hanging out with a a law student from UFC, uh, and I was seeing the books that he was reading for a class, and I was just amazed at how thick all these legal books were. They were like thousands of pages. They were this thick, and I'm just thinking to myself, are you bringing these books to class? It's crazy here. You're going to break your back. But as I was looking at all these books, it made me think that all of them served one purpose, and it's to deal with humanity's sin. It's to deal with humanity's sin. You know, James Madison said this about law and government. Let me show it to you. But what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections on human nature? If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. We need the law because we are not angels. You guys see this? The law, it might manage bad behavior. It might make you sin less because of consequences or punishment. But the law will never change your desire to sin because it cannot change the heart. The only power in all the world that can stop sin and change you from the inside out is grace. What we have in our verses here is the choice we all need to make. Will you follow God out of fear or out of love? Will you live under the law or will you live under grace? You know, what Paul does in our verses is remind us again that it's through our union with Christ we can become more like Christ. And the way that he's helped us understand this is by giving us two illustrations. In chapter 6, he's given us the illustration of master and slave, and we've gone through that for the last two weeks. And in our verses, he gives us the illustration now of being married to Christ. And that's what we'll look at today. So with that, here are three points to move us along. Let me show it to you. Grace does not lead us to sin. Why? We have died to our old marriage to the law. Second, we have a new marriage with Christ. And third, we have a new heart of love. So first, we have died to our old marriage to the law. Uh, Verses 1 and 3 again. 
Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Now, what we have here in verse 1 is that first off, Paul gives us the general principle, and now in verses 2 and 3, he gives us an illustration of that principle. So verse 1, the principle. Paul is saying is that when you die, you're free from the law. Pretty obvious. For example, dead people don't get speeding tickets. You don't bring a corpse to a courtroom, right? You don't do that. When you die, the authority and power that law had over you no longer exists. That's the principle of verse 1. And in verses 2 and 3, he illustrates with marriage. He says in the same way, it's only until your spouse dies can you remarry. That in the same way, he's saying for us that our first spouse was to the law, and the only way to break it is through death. Now, when Paul says that we're married to the law, what he's saying is that for all of humanity, we are bound to the law of God. That since the beginning of creation, humanity has been meant to walk with God and to live in light of his glory, to reflect him and to reproduce righteousness. But when sin came into our existence, we became broken, rebellious sinners. So God gives us his law so that we would know what it would take to walk with him. And this law has authority over all of our lives because we are bound to God and to his perfect standard. That has always been God's original intent. The Paul that Paul is trying to make here with the marriage illustration is that we need to see is that our marriage to the law is right and it is a legal union that we have, and the only way to break it is death. Now, what's the problem with this? What's the problem with being married to the law? It's because the law as a spouse, he is a horrible, horrible spouse. And it's not because the law is bad. Because the law is only a reflection of God's character, what is bad is us. We can't obey the law. We won't obey the law. Paul says in verse 5, For while you were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. When Paul says that we were living in the flesh, he's talking about our original sinful condition and how it was controlled by sinful desires and that these sinful passions were aroused by the law. That instead of seeing the law as good and beautiful, we saw it as, the way, as a way to continue to grow in our rebellion against God. For example, for any of us who have kids or have worked with kids, what happens when you tell them not to do that one thing. What do they do? That very one thing, right? From birth, they are hardwired to sin. You don't need to teach your kids to be evil. They're born evil, okay? I have four of them, so I know, all right? They're born that way. Romans 8 says this. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The essence of living in our flesh is the unwillingness to do what we're told because we want to be God. So when we receive God's law, God's standard, God's authority, instead of receiving it, it's our way to take it and to use it against him that we will disobey him because it's our way of shaking our fists at God. Are you guys catching this here? 
Paul's argument right now is that law does not only not lead you away from sin, law leads you right into it, into more sin because of our rebellious nature. The law could never, ever give you the power to save yourself. All it could do was condemn you and show you over and over again just how wrong you were and how far you were from God's standards. Let me ask you, how many of you would be happy with this kind of marriage? Imagine that you're married to a spouse who demanded perfection from you but would never, ever give you the power to meet their demands. So just imagine you wake up one morning, you wake up, you open your eyes, and your spouse turns over to you and says, you failed. All right, okay, okay. You go to the bathroom, you, you, you wash up. Oh, and you see on the bathroom mirror a little sticky note. But instead of saying, I love you, have a great day, it says, you screwed up again. Oh, geez, okay. So now you go to work, you go to school, and you have your phone, and you're getting blasted with all these text messages from your spouse. And as you open them, they all say the same thing. You failed. You screwed up. You're not good enough. You're a loser, okay? Uh, how many of you would be happy with a marriage like that? None of us would want that. Yet many of us are still holding on to this marriage. Did you know that? That even though many of us are not Jewish and the Torah might not be the center of our lives, all of us here still function to some degrees with a set of laws to make us meaningful and acceptable. That just like these Jewish readers here, that many of us look to our achievements, looks to our works, looks, looks to our performance to make us mean something. That, hey, look, I'm obedient. I'm moral, I'm religious, I read the Bible, I pray, I listen to Caleb, I don't watch those bad movies. Now I know that I'm a good person. No, you're married to the law. The law, the rules that you have, that's what's defining you, not God. Or another example is that we look to the approval of others. You know, I do this with my wife all the time, that every Sunday I long for her approval after a sermon. That we go home together after church and we're talking and I'm just waiting for her words of affirmation. But she talks about everything but the sermon. She talks about the music. She talks about the hospitality table. She talks about the people that she talked to. I'm like, oh, that, okay, that's great, that's great, that's great. But deep down I'm screaming, how about my sermon? Did you like it or not? But I don't ask her directly because it would be too desperate. So I just keep finding ways to go around it, hinting at it. And finally when she gets what I'm looking for... She sometimes says to me, Kenson, the sermon was good. Yes! I have a reason to live. This feels great. You know, I'm doing cartwheels in the house. But oftentimes, she says to me, oh, it was okay. I die. I want to quit my job. I don't want to do this anymore. What's the point of living? Rafe, I don't know if the same thing happens with you, but that's what happens with me here. Now, let me just say, I might be married to my wife, but really, I'm married to the law. That instead of depending on God for my worth and righteousness, I'm trusting in my performance, in people-pleasing, in my efforts and achievements. In verse 6, Paul says that we are held captive to this. It's like a prison that you can't rest, you can't stop, that you're constantly trying to find ways to justify your worth. This is a marriage that enslaves you and condemns you because you will never, ever be good enough. You will not be good enough to meet God's standards, let alone your own standards. 
You know, some of us grew up in churches which this was the very thing that was taught every single weekend. That you were reminded over and over again of just how bad you were and you left church feeling like a failure. You know, how many of us are sitting in our seats right now that have been so hurt and wounded by the church because it was a law church and not a grace church? How many people are not in our seats today and are distant from God because all they ever heard is that God is not someone you first love, it is someone you first fear, that he is not first your father, he is first a taskmaster. And we just walk away from that. Some of us are still married to the law in this room, and it is a terrible spouse. And here's the second point. We have a new marriage with Christ. Again, the point that we have to remember with the illustration is that the bond that we have with the law is legitimate and the only way to break it is through death. You know, unlike our society today, when marriages can be dissolved for any reason, well, today I'm just not feeling it, so I want to I separate, I want a divorce. Well, you're not as pretty, pretty or as handsome as you were before, so I want to end this. Well, you're not making as much money as before, you know, I, I want to end this, okay? Back then, when you said the words, till death do us part, you meant it. Only death could dissolve this union. And the good news of our verses is that Paul says is that Christ has saved us from this horrible marriage. Verse 4, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. When Jesus died on the cross, he died to fulfill the demands and penalty of the law. And in the great act of penal substitution, it meant that his death is now your death, that you have been freed to marry Christ, that you don't belong to the law, but you belong to him. And unlike this old marriage that led to death, death physically, death spiritually, separation from God and so forth, this marriage to Christ brings life because you belong to the one who has been raised from the dead. That in this marriage with Christ, there's no such thing as till death do us part because death could not hold Jesus down. The very moment you believed in Christ, your marriage with him will be eternal and secure because you were raised with him. This is a marriage of beauty, of joy, of love, of peace, of perfection for all eternity, and nothing in all creation could ever dissolve this union. That is some good news. In addition, our marriage to Christ is not cold and rigid because you're no longer united to a set of rules, but a person who is alive. Our spiritual union is with an all-glorious, all-providing, all-satisfying, ever-living person. And this gets said a lot, but it's worth repeating. Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. You are not joined to rules and commandments. You're joined to a living and resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And what that means is that now when you get those text messages from your ex saying, hey, I just want to remind you that you failed again, that you screwed up, that you're a loser. Jesus takes the phone from your hands and he begins typing these words, paid in full, send. Back off, send, or else, send. You know, at least that's what I'm thinking in my head here, okay? 
Jesus meets the demands of the law and pays the penalty in full so that you can now be married to him. That is some great news. And can I just say, it's when we constantly preach the gospel to ourselves and remember this union, you will find the power to be faithful to your spouse. Again, imagine that it's your wedding day and your spouse says to you, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, I will always be there for you. I will never leave you no matter how bad it gets, no matter how hard it gets. You have my heart now and forever. Now, you're on the other side hearing this. How many of you would hear those words of love and say, did you just say that you'll stay with me no matter what? Okay, all right, I'm going to go have some fun. I'm going to go ahead and hang out with some other folks, float around over here, have a few flings over here, you know, because I know that you're never going to ever leave me, so I get to do that. That would be twisted. No one would do that. Instead, when you're given a love like this, the only natural response is to respond in love. It's to respond in faithfulness to your spouse because this love is so precious. Our union with Christ doesn't lead us to more sin. It leads us away from sin because we've experienced a greater affection and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. This is why the solution to sin is not to put up more guardrails around temptations or to find more accountability partners or to put a rubber band around your waist and to snap your hand every single time you think of a bad thought or that you sin. Not saying that these things aren't helpful, but it won't stop us from this reason for sinning because none of these strategies deal with the why of why we sin. It doesn't deal with the heart problem. The reason we sin is never because we're forced into sin. It's because we love to sin. There is a war for our hearts that sin wants to win. The only reason we ever fall into sin is because we just forget how loved we are in Christ. Justified people will not sin more. They will seek to sin less because they will have a growing understanding of God's love for them. This is our spiritual reality. And the good news is that we can never, ever go back to this old marriage of the law because we're now in Christ. However, I do want to say this. That even though we can never go back to our old marriage to the law, we can still commit spiritual adultery. That we can go back to our old spouse here and there, have a fling here and there. How many of us are putting ourselves in the arms of someone else? What are the false lovers that are enticing you to forget your true spouse and the faithfulness that he deserves? And if you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know what, this doesn't bother God. He's too big for this. He's got other things to worry about. You are wrong. This breaks his heart as it would anyone, any other spouse's heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it speaks of God being a jealous husband towards his church. It says this, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion 
to Christ. Now, when you hear the word jealousy, immediately we think that it's a bad word. It's not a bad word. Jealousy is only a bad thing if you want something that doesn't belong to you. But when God says that he's jealous for his church, when he says that he is jealous for you, he is absolutely right to feel that way because Christ spilled his blood to make you his own. So the question is this, what do we do when this happens? What do we do when we fall into spiritual adultery? Once again, it's to remember your union with Christ and to know that every time you run back to him, you will find forgiveness and hope every time we mess up. Because we have to remember that when we are married to Christ, he makes vows to us. That just like regular vows, he not only declares his present love for us, but he also declares his future love for us, right? For example, in vows, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, in plenty or in want. These are all declared, these are our proclamations of love, not just for today, but for tomorrow and for the rest of our lives. Jesus, as our true spouse, makes those same kind of promises that he says, never will I leave you nor forsake you. He says, I will be with you always till the very end of the age. Romans 8 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. What this means is that even when we fall into spiritual adultery, know that God's affection will be the same for you, waiting for you to return. That there will be forgiveness and mercy. That even in our faithlessness, he will be faithful to us because his love for us was never based on what we could do for him, but it was only based on his amazing grace. Amen? Do you guys see? Grace does not lead us to more sin because it leads us into the arms of Jesus Christ. And, here, and this leads us to the third point. Grace does not lead us to more sin. Why? Because we have a new heart of love. Look, look at verse 6 here. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the ring code. And now because of this marriage, we serve in a different way. Now, what Paul's telling us here is that now because of our marriage to Christ, our relationship to the law has changed. That the law is no longer the way that I try to earn God's love, but now I obey the law because I know that I am loved by God, and the law is now how I express my love for him. And this has always been the purpose of the law, that God doesn't give us the law for us to see his law and for us to say, hmm, I can do that. Let me roll up my sleeves and try to earn my salvation. No. The law was given to us so that we would see God's holiness and perfection and for us to understand that the chasm between us and God is too far. I could never ever meet that. I could never jump that. The law was to make us cry out to the Savior and say, I can't do it. I need someone to help me. The law has been given to point our eyes to Christ, the only one who could fulfill the law. The law is not the goal of history. Christ is the goal of history. The law is not the goal of your life. Christ is the goal of your life. Christ did not come into history to lead us to the law. Law came into history to lead us to Christ. And because of Christ, we're no longer motivated by fear, but we are now motivated by love. You know, Tony Evans, a preacher in Dallas, Texas, 
once gave this illustration. When you walk into a house, you can always tell the difference between a grace dog and a law dog, okay? A law dog always has his tail tucked underneath. It's intimidated by the master. It's afraid to get spanked. This is a miserable dog. But a grace dog is different. Whenever the master makes their way home, the dog is wagging its tail, it's jumping up and down, it's barking in excitement. Why? Because there is a relationship there. The dog wants to be with his master and to make the master happy. And just so you guys know, there is no equivalent for cats. They are all mopey and dopey, okay? That's th th those are cats. In the same way, Grace now means that there is a new kind of heart and a new kind of obedience that unlike the law, which gave us no power to obey, God now, through our marriage in Christ, gives us the Holy Spirit so that we can obey, that the law of God is no longer a list of condemnations, but now we see them as expressions of God's desires, that when I read the law, I see how God loves honesty, purity, truth, integrity, kindness, justice. So now in my marriage to Christ, I see this list of laws, and I see them as ways that I can please the one who saved me. When you are married to Christ, sinning no longer becomes a way of life. It's now a life of service. Verse 6 again, released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit. We serve in the way of love. When we're freed from the law, it doesn't mean that we now get to live any way we want, but it means that we now get to serve. That as God has poured his love into our lives, the overflow of that, of that love now goes to others. That it leads us to love our neighbors, to love each other, to love, our, to lo to love other people, to, to love the unreached peoples of the world, to love our enemies, to love the weak, to love the suffering. And this is the genius of the gospel. It's when we receive God's love, will we now be able to finally fulfill and obey the law. Let me show you two verses here. Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling of the law. The very love God gives us is the very love that finally fulfills the law. And what this means is that everything you do for God, everything you do for the church, everything you do for the city, for your job, wherever God might call you, it all flows from an intimacy with God. That's how it works. And if you need a good role model for this, look no further than Jesus Christ. That before he started his earthly ministry, he gets baptized and he hears the glorious words from his father. This is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And from that moment forward, everything else Jesus did flowed from that love. Grace does not produce sinners. It produces servants. It does not produce lawlessness. It produces love. Friends, do you know that you are loved by God? That you're loved by him? You know, to close out, you know, I actually want us to do a little assessment here, uh, created by a pastor in New York, uh, Tim Keller. And I want us to answer the question, am I married to the law or am I married 
to Christ. You know, what you're going to see here is that you guys are going to see two columns here, law, Christ, and I'm going to go through each row, row, and I just want you to ask yourself, who am I? What am I doing? You know, and I want us to do business with God here. So let's go through this list here. So married to the law. I obey, therefore, I'm accepted. Married to Christ. I'm accepted, therefore, I obey. To the law. Motivation is based on fear and insecurity. To Christ. Motivation is based on grateful joy. To law. I obey God in order to get things from God. To Christ, I obey God to get God to delight in and resemble him. To the law, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who is good deserves, deserves a comfortable life. To Christ, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know all my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. The law. When I am criticized, I am furious and devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all cost. To Christ. When I am criticized, I struggle. But it is not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. To the law. My prayer life consists largely of petition, and it only heats up when I'm in time of need. To Christ. My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. And here's the last one. To the law. My self-image swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I am not living up to, a stand, to, to standards, I feel like a failure. To Christ. My self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad that he had to die for me, and I am so loved that he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. Are you married to the law, or are you married to Jesus? Whose arms are you in? Let's bow our heads and pray.